Well, good morning, and uh, along with Darwin, I echo a welcome to any and all who would be joining us in these strange times. But thankfully, we believe in a God who's uh, not surprised and not out of control of the current situation, so we look to him alone uh, for um, for our hope and for our guidance. And as we come to God's word, uh, if you brought a Bible, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10. And uh, beginning in verse 32 to verse 45. And before I read that, this is the third time Jesus uh, foretells of his death to his disciples. But this is the final time as he is leading his disciples to Jerusalem where, where he will be handed over and where he, will, where he will die. Many consider this section, specifically verse 45, to be uh, the, really the theme verse for Mark. And so I want to draw your attention to that as we read together. Uh, So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 32 of chapter 10 of the book of Mark. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth and how um, it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so now we pray that as we look at your word, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to ask a simple question as we get started this morning, and that is, uh, when you think of, of Christianity and, and, and 
whether you think of it as a religion, as a philosophy, or, or whatever it is that you think of Christianity, um, what makes it different? Um, what makes it different than other religions, than other philosophies, and other ways of life? Um, this past summer, my wife and I, we had the chance to visit Rome for 30 hours. And in that 30 hours, we tried to see as much as we could see of the city, uh, just given the opportunity. And we had, um, we had downloaded a couple of um, tours to the city. And one of the places that the tour uh, led us was to the, the Pantheon. And some of you all may be familiar with the Pantheon. Kids, ask your parents if you can Google it later um, and look at it. But the Pantheon is this interesting place um, that was built, and it literally means many or all gods, but it was built uh, sort of as a catch-all. Uh, that, um, you know, this monument to the gods, there was this fear as the, the, um, the person giving us the tour in our ear was telling us uh, that in their desire to, to, um, to have peace at war or to, to, to win battles, to, uh, to get protection during war, maybe good harvest seasons, even fertility, that they would have to offer sacrifices to please God and, and, and many gods at that. And, and there was a fear that maybe they might leave one out. And if they were to leave the one out that would possibly bring them, uh, you know, the victory in battle or bring them fertility, they didn't want to do that. And so what do you do? Well, you just make a monument to all gods, obviously. Uh, thus brings us the Pantheon, right? It's a monument for that very purpose. And as I, was been, as I was thinking about this and have been thinking about this, when you get down to it, their view of God was one that, as it, you know, at its root, is that we've got to fix this problem. Whatever this problem is, we've got to fix it. And we've got to do it to keep the gods happy. At least we have to try um, for our own betterment. And, of course, it says a lot more than that, that they would build this monument for this purpose. But the reason I start here is because when I think about what makes Christianity different and what I want you to think about what makes Christianity different, is that nothing could be more in contrast than what Christianity is about, especially as we read this passage in contrast with why and what the Pantheon was really about. Because Christianity comes to us and it says, one, as we'll see this morning, you can't fix this problem. And we'll get to what this problem is. But you can't fix this problem. But two, and probably the most shocking is that the God who created this world, the God who created you, is actually going to be the one who says, I will fix it. I will fix it. I will give myself over as a ransom for the sins of this world. That's where we are this morning. That's what we're starting with. And, and this, I would argue, is what makes Christianity uh, different than, than really anything else. Is that the, the creator God comes in and he says, there's a huge problem. I didn't cause this problem. Y'all caused this problem in your rebellion and in your sin. But I'm going to fix it by giving myself as a ransom. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you have your program uh, or bulletin, you'll see three things there that we're going to look at. The request of James and John. The response of Jesus to James and John. And we're going to look at the reality uh, of what this means for us. So the request, the response, and the reality in this text. Let's go. First, the request. As, as we said, they're walking to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading them. Uh, Jesus has told them for the third time, this is what's going to happen. And it's in the midst of that, in verse 35, if you look back at your, your text, that James and John come to Jesus and they say these words, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
Still can't get over that. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. Now, we've been talking a lot about expectations in this series on Mark. Um, you know, expectations of how the kingdom will grow. Expectations as to what the Messiah will do when he takes control. And Jesus has just said, again, for the third time, that he is going to Jerusalem to die. And it's at this point, and I think Mark wants us to ask this question, is any of this sinking in for the disciples? Well, for two of Jesus' closest disciples, it doesn't appear to be. What are James and John asking? And in short, James and John are asking for honor and for power. They're asking for these things in the last days. In other words, their request is nothing more than a move of personal gain and self-preservation. It's a power grab. That is, as we read James and John's request, there is an expectation, regardless of what Jesus has said so far, that the kingdom of God will offer this hierarchical type of position of honor and power, much like Rome was offering in that day or the world around it. And James and John are are coming to Jesus with this expectation, and they are saying, Jesus, when you assume power in the coming days... Please put us in authority over others by being selected as your top two in the kingdom. Now quickly, who are James and John? Uh, They are a part of Jesus' 12 disciples. Early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus calls 12 men to follow him. James and John, brothers, uh, were two of those 12. But they're not just any two, as we've been seeing in Mark. They are actually part of what many consider or call Jesus' inner circle which would include Peter. Um, Just an example of this is back in chapter 9 when we looked at the transfiguration, when Jesus goes up to the mountain and transfigures, uh, reveals uh, his holiness in in ways that he hasn't up to this point, he takes three people with him. And who are those three? Well, they're James and John and they're Peter. It's that inner circle. It's not that that, that, it, that he has favorites. I'm going to put it necessarily that way. But it's clear that Jesus took these three to show them more of who he was. Which actually makes James and John's request a bigger deal. I mean, if there is anyone who should be getting the message that when Jesus is going uh, to Jerusalem to lay his life down... You might expect it to be James and John. If there's anyone who would be getting the message that Jesus' kingdom will not come in a way that offers personal gain and self-preservation, it would be James and John, but it's clear that they don't. Now, the request by James and John, as, as I've said, is both egregious and foolish and clear that they don't even know what they are truly asking, which is... Fantastic, because this is exactly Jesus' response in verse 38. You do not know what you are asking. Because Jesus is going to take this cup. It's this cup of God's holy and perfect judgment. And he's going to take it by putting himself on a cross, which we will get to later. He's also about to be baptized or literally overwhelmed is what that, that the, the, the metaphorical meaning of that word. Overwhelmed by all that sin and evil have to offer as a sacrifice for the world. James and John have no idea what they're asking. If they knew what they were asking, they wouldn't be asking it. That's the point. Instead, what's on their mind, it's personal gain and self-preservation. Jesus, when you assume power... In the coming days, here's what we want you to do for us. 
Okay. Now, the point so far is not for us, it's not for me, it's not for you, to look at James and John and sort of say, how could they do that? How could they ask for such a thing? You know, if I were their friends like the disciples, I'd be furious. Who do they think they are? That's not the point, although that might be our instinct even as we we hear this. The point is, rather, to see that we are actually just like James and John in this moment. Our hearts long for and instinctively uh, do reach out for what is best for us. And I'm just calling that personal gain and self-preservation. And just, just to use a, a, a recent illustration, like look no further, right, than your local Walmart or grocery this past week. Did you see people rushing to the stores, buying just enough toilet paper, just enough supplies for themselves, making sure that their fellow neighbor had someone they showed up at the stores this week. I didn't. Uh, and my, you know, personally, I was going for, uh, you know, <clears throat> beverage reinforcements. But that's just me. Um, the point is, I was thinking about me. I wasn't thinking about you. Thinking about what I needed, but that's in our hearts. Like that's our default. That's our DNA, as it were, to think about us. It's all to say it's, it, it, it is in us to think about and move towards personal gain and self-preservation. What James and John are doing are what any of us would do. And that's the point. If the disciples are angry at this point, it's because they didn't ask first, you know. But it's in this context, friends, of this egregious request that we hear and we see what makes Christianity so different. The gospel goes in a different direction again. It goes opposite of personal gain and self-preservation. It goes opposite of the ways of the world. It goes opposite of instinct. It goes opposite of of whatever uh, our default would be. Because of how sin has bent us inward. Instead, it moves in the direction of service and self-sacrifice. That's what we see in Jesus' response. And this is what we'll turn to next. But this is the request. At this point, we need to see how we are like James and John. And just as a, a point of encouragement before we move on. If James and John are asking this question, we are asking this question. And we need to listen to Jesus' response to them as he would be saying it to us. And this gets to the second point, the response. How does Jesus respond to the request of James and John? Jesus will counter with verse 45. Look at it, please. He basically says, I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many or all. What does Jesus mean by ransom here? Uh, this word, lutron, means to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. Let me say that again. It means to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. You can think of it as a payment. A ransom is a payment for those unable to pay. Schnabel in his commentary writes, Jesus gives gives his own life as a payment so that many who are unable to pay themselves can be released and thus saved. In other words, here, friends, is the big difference. Christianity is saying here... Like it has said in no other place, no other religion, no other anything, that there will be a one for the many exchange. 
This is what is so different. This is Jesus' response to their request. Because it's not just anyone. Right? It's not just, I will select somebody uh, to come in and do this. It's actually God himself. And this is why Jesus is saying, you don't know what you are asking. And by the way, I will be the one to give my life for you. As we look at any other ancient Near East history and especially Greek ancient mythology, like, like the Iliad by Homer, for example, if someone is going to get or receive something from the gods, they must sacrifice something first. Agamemnon must offer a sacrifice to receive good winds to Troy. So he offers his daughter... In Jesus' day, there were altars everywhere in Gentile lands where Gentiles offered burnt offerings to the gods for their favor. In other words, the ancient view of, of God was make him happy, honor him, don't make him mad, and then maybe he will help you. Nowhere are we reading that it will be God himself who becomes the sacrifice for the people, who offers his life for those who cannot Pay the cost to be freed. In other words, nowhere is grace God's response except in Jesus. The one who has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is really what separates Christianity from any other religion or philosophy or anything for that matter. It's what you and I must also pay close attention to as we either consider the claims of Christianity, as we either consider following him as one of his disciples, whichever it may be and everything in between. This is what we must look at. That nowhere is grace, which is getting something that we don't deserve. God's response, accepting Christianity and Jesus. Think of the ways, for just a second, uh, that an all-powerful, um, all-knowing, holy God could have responded to the request of James and John. Just think about that for a second. Um, he could have scolded them and would have been right to do so, right? How dare you ask for this? Um, he could have shamed them. Are you fools, you idiots. He could have bargained uh, with them. He could have toyed with them, you know, another way to put that. Make a deal, even. Okay, so you want this? You want uh, to sit at my right and left hand? Okay, well, well, here's what I want you to do for me first. And then maybe we'll talk about it. And it's somewhere in there, right, that we have this sort of old script for the gods of men. Sort of, you scratch my back, I will scratch yours. But Jesus is so different. He forfeits this power. He forfeits the possessions that he could get, the worldly honor and successes, and he, and he does it by laying his life down. What could be more different uh, than, than this type of power grab that we see even in our world today? What could be more different uh, than this move, uh, than this, than a move of personal gain and self-preservation? So what is Jesus' response here? I have come to serve, not to be served, to offer my life as a ransom. I've come to buy the freedom of the slave and of the prisoner. And who is the slave? Who is the prisoner? It's me. It's you. This is what's different. This is Jesus' response. But why? 
Why? And this gets to the last point, the reality here. Why does Jesus, the Son of God, have to offer uh, his life as a ransom in the first place? And the short answer to that, which is another sermon, right, is sin must be atoned for. But let me just try to, try to uh, you know, get at the first parts here. Sin must be atoned for. While the request of James and John that we've been looking at is certainly one that seeks personal gain and self-preservation, there's actually something else that runs a lot deeper going on, and that is this in their request. They completely underestimate their own sin and what it will cost for them to actually be forgiven. See, after Jesus responds, you don't know what you're asking. He goes on to say that, 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 are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? And what is their response in verse 39? We are able. We are able. See, at a deeper level, they don't think they need to be ransomed. They think Jesus will come in and he will take out those who are truly bad, those who are truly evil, and we, the good guys, like we will be on the right side of history here. But it's their hearts, it's their motives that need to be ransomed. And the only way that that can happen is if Jesus atones for their sin too. They have underestimated not just their own sin, their own hearts. They have underestimated the scope of the problem in, in general. And see, James and John could at best take the earthly punishment for someone else. That, they, they could do that. Which Jesus says that they actually will receive this type of judgment from the world just by following him. And we know that as the, as the lives of the disciples, many of them, most of them were martyred. We know that that is what happened. But at their best, they could, they could take the earthly punishment. But James and John cannot take the most important punishment, which is the heavenly punishment. One that would atone for their sin and mine, an atonement that in return actually ends up making us heirs of God's kingdom. See, James and John can't do that. They can't do that for you. They can't do that for me. They don't see the depths of their sin and what it will truly cost. And as a result, they don't see that they, like all of us, we need to be ransomed. God's judgment is a real thing. And it must go somewhere. This is not because God is mean or angry. It's because God is holy. He is just. In short, what this means is God can't just say, oh, it's all forgotten. It's all forgiven. You know, really, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. All these things that have happened and that are contrary to who I am, all these things against me, all these things against others, it doesn't really matter. And though we wish at times that that he could say this, we personally don't live like this ourselves. And just to, to go a little further with this, no one who has had terrible and even evil things happen to them. Or happen to someone they love. Whether it be, uh, maybe somebody was murdered. Maybe somebody was raped. Maybe somebody experienced sexual abuse or theft. Right? Nobody would just say, oh, it just doesn't matter. It's just, we'll just act like it didn't happen. Why? 
Well, because one, there's real damage there that must be repaired for justice to take place. But two, instinctively, we all have that sense of justice in us. Someone or something must pay for what has happened, but also must be able to make and restore back to me whole what went wrong. And see, friends, I just want you to get a taste of that, because if that is true for us as the creation, how much more for the creator who is perfect and holy? Right? But it's not just the major stuff that, that, that I just mentioned. It's, it's the motives, too, in our hearts. It's requests like James and John. Seeking personal gain and self-preservation at the expense of others. It's underestimating what your sin truly costs, but also not understanding what it really needs to be atoned for. It's thinking that you don't really need to be ransomed, but others do. All this mess, all this disorder that the Bible calls sin is in direct opposition to what it means to be holy. And as a result, it must be judged. And that's actually a good thing. We are crying out for that righteousness, for that judgment, for that that justice in our own hearts. But this is also why sin and holiness cannot coexist. And as the creator, God, the Holy One, he actually gets the final word here. In other words, he is not bringing us into the table to bargain with him. But what does he do? Does he demand a sacrifice of your family? Does he ask you to do something to appease him? Does he toy with you? Does he he begin sort of the the bargaining process and playing games with you and just kind of seeing, well, maybe we'll see. No. What Mark is showing us here in verse 45 is he does the unthinkable up to this point. He makes himself the sacrifice, friends. The ransom. And he does it for those who don't even think they need it in the first place. This is how good he really is. The one for the many. We call this substitutionary atonement. And it's the best $5 word you're going to hear all day, all week. If Jesus is our ransom, that means we are the prisoner. He is setting free to set us free. Jesus substitutes himself for us. He takes our place in jail, as it were, so that we can go free. But this is also the plan. Don't miss this because it's just not about forgiving sins. It's about restoring everything to whole. Which is actually one of the best parts. That one day we will be restored from all the wrongs that both have been done to us and that we have done to other people. From all the injustices that have happened to us and the ways that we have been mistreated and the ways that we have mistreated others. And as our substitute, Jesus will drink the ultimate cup, the full and perfect and good and righteous judgment of God. And he'll do it on a cross. This is Easter, friends. The cross is where all of us will be ransomed, where God will buy us back to himself. And this is illustrated beautifully in a simple story. I don't know who who, who told it, so I can't give credit to that person, but it's it's, it's simple and it goes like this. There's a girl who, who built, a little girl who built this boat, built a toy boat that she loved to play with in a nearby stream. 
And every day she would go out and she'd take that boat that she had made and created and she would put it in that stream. She'd play with it until one day the stream took it way down, um, way down the line and she lost it. And she was really sad about that because um, she loved this boat that she'd created. And so many days went by and she couldn't find it. And, and, and so uh, later on, she's walking uh, downtown with her mom and her dad. They pass by this toy store and she looks there in the window and what she sees is her boat sitting there in the window. And she looks at her mom and her dad and she says, that's my boat. And so they go into the store and they talk to the clerk and the clerk says to them, look, I'm sorry. Like somebody came in the other day and sold me this boat and I had to pay for it. So if you want it, you have to pay for it. You have to buy it back. I'm sorry. So the girl goes home with her family and for the next several days, she begins to save money and begins to think of a way of how she's going to buy that boat back. And sure enough, she gets to the point where she has the funds and her parents take her down to the store and she buys the boat. And as the story ends, this is what she says as she's leaving the store, holding the boat. She says, first, I made you, but now I bought you. Right? First, I made you. Now I bought you. This is what Jesus does. This is what being a ransom for sinners truly is. He created us. We became lost due to our choices, due to our sin and our rebellion. But that didn't stop him. He bought us by offering himself as a substitute, the one for the many, so that he could have us again. The question that we're left with at this point then is, do we think we need to be ransomed? Do, do we have an assessment of the cost of our sin and what really it, it will take and what it did take to fix it? Do we think that we need this type of payment? And the reality is, sin is real. We feel and experience it every day, no matter what you call it. But God's judgment is real too. Sin must be accounted for. Justice must prevail. We know it in our hearts But because of Jesus, there's a new reality here, a new reality breaking forth. We have a savior, a substitute, a ransom, a one for the many. So when we turn to God today, we don't turn to a monster or to a God that we don't know or who are we are uncertain of how he will treat us today. No, instead, we turn to a father, one with open arms because of Jesus, who welcomes us back to himself First, I created you, then I bought you back. This is the reality. This is all because of Jesus, our ransom. So we've seen the request made by James and John, the response, and we've seen the reality because of Jesus, our ransom. Where does this leave us this morning? And just for time's sake, really quickly, I want to offer this thought to you as you think about this personally, but maybe you text somebody to talk about this in your small group or just uh, as a family. Um, Where this leads us as Jesus disciples, that's our theme for this series, Discipleship in the Kingdom of God, is that when we know we've been ransomed by Jesus, we will consider being, quote, slave of all. I want you to look at back at verse 44. Jesus calls his disciples together, as you notice there. I think it starts back in 42, actually. And he tells them, look, the world does it this way. This is the way of the world. Power grabs, authority, right? Lord, lording it over other people, taking advantage of other people, but not with you. Notice he says that. Not my followers. 
Not people who would call themselves Christians, not people who would consider themselves followers of Jesus. My followers will be what? Verse 44, slave of all. Slave of all. And how? Are you just, just going to try harder? No, when you see Jesus substituting himself for you, right? when, when you see him dying in our place as our ransom, as we even begin to try to get our arms around this, right? this produces what? produces humility in his followers. It's a type of humility that says, I was given something that I don't deserve. And that's grace. And that produces a gospel humility in us, the kind of humility that says, if Jesus did this for me, then I can serve. I can be slave of all. I can begin to think about that. I can begin to, to move in certain directions. I can give up my life because of what he's already done for me. Look, the alternative here is this. If James and John bargain with God, right? If they they get to sit at his right and his left because of some deal that they constructed with Jesus along the way, right? If we think of God in those terms, right? And let's just say he gives it to them. They will only conclude that, that this happened because of something in them that they earned this. And if that's our starting place uh, as followers of Jesus, we will never move ourselves to be slave of all. Because that humility that is required for us to go into dark places, to submit ourselves uh, to washing feet as a metaphor, so to speak, it'll, it'll never happen in us. The humility of the cross must come into us. And the only way it does is as we begin to understand the cost and the need that we begin to see that we really needed to be ransomed. And when that problem was presented, Jesus moved forward and did it for us. When we know we've been ransomed, we know what our sin truly cost and needs to be forgiven. Only then will we consider being slave of all. So what is God calling you to today and to this week? And I ask that because who the heck knows, <laughs> right? I mean, we are in a, 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 an age, it seems that, that we, don't, we don't know what's happening tomorrow. And so I need us to think about that. I need us to think about what it looks like to serve in ways that God is calling us to in today's circumstances. And for the moment, it looks like staying home, right? So there you go. But I, I want us to think about this. And as we think about it, as we ask the question what it looks like, we know what gives us the ability to do whatever Jesus is calling us to do in this moment for other people. Right? It's seeing him give himself as a ransom for you. The one who looks at you and says, first I created you, and then I bought you back. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what love is this that we see on the pages here of Mark's gospel? That the God of this universe, the one who created all of us, would even consider laying his life down for us. For people as arrogant as us who would say uh, in the face of God uh, that we are able uh, to, to take the cup that you're going to take. To be baptized with the baptized that you're going to be baptized with. Forgive us of that pride and arrogance. But forgive us of the ways that we uh, move into this world looking for personal gain looking for self-preservation. And would you free us of that? Because fear is what is behind all that. And would you free us of that as we look at your son, Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all of us. We ask this for your glory alone.